they have to stop filming so he could just pant like a dog. Like he he couldn't sweat, so he would get overheated. So, Greg, what, what's actually the point of this? Uh, because I thought that Michael Berryman was in Last House on the Left. <laughs> but Mike does know Michael Berryman, so it all worked out. He's a very... He's a but why would you bring up this guy having to pant like a dog, though? Because it's an interesting story. This guy this condition where he couldn't sweat. Now, the next time I see him, I got to offer him a bowl of water. Because right. yes, you do pat him and on the head. All right, welcome to another episode of the law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. Unfortunately, Brendan is not here today. He had work to do, so it is sad. And uh today we have an incredibly special guest. And I said that last week because uh last week we had Jeremy Rain on, and this week we have Mark Scheffler, both of whom were in the seminal horror feature. Last House on the Left from 1972, where and both of them have gone on to have actually other careers than in the movies, which I think is kind of an interesting thing, which I want to get into later. And later also, we'll be discussing our client, which is kind of a, a reboot of our client from last week, because we never really got to our client last week, because we were really into the conversation. So it is uh, Life is Horror and Your Horrible Redux. That is the, uh, the client for today. Old, trapped in a hellscape of their own invention, socially unaware old white men bound by the pretense of being fake lawyers yet knowing no law, no exquisite Latin terminology, they are inexplicably compelled to quibble over minutia, squabble over triflings, and bicker like those who value their backyards far too highly without even knowing the difference between an easement and an alleyway. At this very moment, you have entered the heart of the law offices of quibble, squabble, and bicker. Let's get started. In a small, God-fearing American town, one reclusive family is different than the rest, and they lie in wait for unfortunate travelers to fall into their web of depravity. Anti-Fatality Films presents a cinematic journey into terror. Last House on the Left, a reboot of the classic horror film. You'll meet Skylar the matriarch of the clan, who gets her kicks by drowning small children in fermenting tubs of kombucha. Martika, her gender-bending husband who has rejected his God-mandated authority as head of the household so he can forcibly transition red-blooded men into a sin-driven life of wanton sissyism. And their Molly-addicted son, Fidel, who runs his own one-man Antifa cell that wants to ruin everything decent and pure in America and make blue lives shatter. If you love your country, do not visit the last house on the left. I'm humbled. <laughs> humbled? I am, I am. I'm, you know, if I wasn't wearing shorts, I'd be down on my knees. Uh, I, I added some political gravitas to the last. I know I, I didn't see the copy, but I am. It felt uh, like there were moments of ad livery. Marie and her friend. I feel like a woman for the first time in my life. Two girls from the suburbs going to the city to have a good time. Oh, wow. This is my roommate Sam. Hi, girls. This is my sister uh, Martha. Uh, Martha, these girls. Uh, I want to buy some grass. Four fun seekers on the loose. Also looking for a good time. And the road leads to nowhere. 
They meet on the first house on the right. What begins as a birthday party ends as a big fun-filled jamboree. What did happen on the first house on the right? The good Dr. Collingwood lived there. His wife lived there too. So did their daughter Marie. They all lived there. They got together and chopped a lot of firewood together so they had plenty for the winter. To avoid having too good of a time though, keep repeating, it's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. First house on the right. <laughs> Was that produced by the Church of Latter-day Saints? <laughs> that yes. seems like a nice movie. I kind of wish the movie was like that. That would have been nicer. What about... <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, okay. So there was our two sponsors for today. Normally we only have one, but Greg and I apparently got overly inspired by, uh, by your presence. Okay. So. Well, glad to, glad to help out. I'm, gl well, I'm glad that you did that movie. Otherwise I couldn't have done that at all. I couldn't have done this without you whatsoever, Mark. Now let's get into your life. So obviously in 1972, you did the last house on the left. And then According to IMDb, you didn't do any other movies for decades late till decades later. You went in, in from assuming you went into uh, Hollywood TV script screenwriting, but did you stop writing in the '90s and then still haven't done anything since then or until like 2009? Um, Is that accurate or? Uh, okay, so which period do you want me to cover? All of them. Everything. <laughs> so last. I was I born a poor green child. All right. No, not 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 at all. Um, <laughs> Last House came out, and um, let me back up to get it accurate. I dropped out of college in 1969, and uh, uh, I had three life goals firmly in place. I wanted to uh, smoke as much weed as possible. Be in our podcast. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to uh, sleep with as many different women as possible, and I wanted to earn just enough money to afford the weed and the women. You were very so, wizened and sage. He like wasn't wizened then, Greg. I know, but that is <laughs> no. such a good way to live your life. I, so, I, I but he wasn't wizened then. Well, okay, he was sage, though. He was a wise. <laughs> Since I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, fundamentally a chicken shit and don't have the balls to be a criminal, um, the entertainment business from an early age for me seemed to be a great draw. So, I, I, I quit college. I went to the Catskill Mountains. I got a job uh, uh, as a stage manager of a nightclub in a huge hotel, like a 1,500-seat nightclub, and uh, saw every comedian in that circuit. Like in night, you know, 1969, it was still it was, it was at the tail end of its heyday, but it was still you know quite 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 the place to be. Could so, you give us some names? Like, are we talking Shecky Green? All the, oh, Shecky, yeah, Shecky Green, old uh, uh, Don Rickles, uh, Alan King, uh, Freddie Roman. Buddy uh, Hackett. Who? Buddy, Buddy Hackett. Yeah, just everybody. Wow. Just, just all of them, right? And I got, friendly, I got friendly with a couple and 
after I was at the hotel for about a year, one of them, a guy by the name of London Lee, uh, um, who was a, a, a very popular TV comedian, had done a lot of Carsons, a lot of Merv Griffins, and he was very popular. And he was actually, his whole routine was that he was a rich kid. He was like the poor little rich kid. And he did come from it from a family like, you know, like uh, Trump wealthy, uh, however, you know, probably Trump's real wealth, right? You know, a couple of hundred million dollars. This family, but that was back in, you know, 1969. His father owned a big dress company on 7th Avenue. So I went to work for him as his uh, road manager and, uh, you know, then became part of, wrote, wrote a couple of jokes for him that he liked. And then he put me in his act, a little, you know, two minute bit that we would do in the middle. And then uh, I stayed with him, did about, I don't know, close to 200 club dates uh, and, did two weeks at the Copacabana uh, in New York City. I did, you know, did my stand-up, a little bit of my stand-up there with him. So shortly after that, I left him, quit the job, went on my own, uh, was doing little clubs, you know, going to auditions. And shortly after, landed last house on the left. Now pick up where, where we left off. Uh, last house, nobody expected it to be what it was. N nobody, N not Wes, not Sean, nobody. We all thought it was just going to be that, you know, drive-in for Hallmark releasing, and that would be that. So it comes out, goes in the drive-ins, doing it, doing its thing there, and uh, uh, out of nowhere, Roger Ebert writes a three and a half out of four star review of the movie. And as I sit here and tell you the truth, literally overnight everything changed. The next hmm. day I walked into Sean's office and I said, Hey, did you hear about that Roger Ebert review? And he was running around trying to figure out how he was going to fill an order for a thousand prints when he had, <laughs> had like 30 made, and that's all he needed. Now, right off that review, a thousand prints are ordered. So, so uh, um, it just, and then, it, and then it broke wide. So what happened was I got a chance for like the next two or three weeks to taste uh, uh, what it was like to be one of the stars of, of a movie that was in the top 10 in the United States. And I can tell you that it, it started to fulfill, uh, uh, you know, uh, the second part of my uh, life goals. Women were throwing themselves at me. I went to do publicity back in Pittsburgh where I grew up and the film was opening there at a, at a theater that my father's cousin was the general manager of like the whole chain. It was like a big, they made a huge deal out of it, press, you know, little video TV news and, and print and all kinds of shit. And like women from my high school graduating class who was scant three years earlier would not give me the fucking time of day were now offering me a whole lot more than just the time. <laughs> the greatest story ever told as far as i'm concerned right it gets, <laughs> it just gets better no 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 it's a dream of that I, I promise you it gets better okay that's everyone's so, dream so anyway so uh um i mean i remember thinking being with one of them and thinking to myself this is a fucking good career choice this is like <laughs> this is it man this is how this is it so so Last House comes and goes. It's a short-lived film, right? It just it it got a lot of press, made a lot, got a lot of heat, but it you know took a dive just as quickly. So after this intense high of you know this these this three-week period of my life when you know uh, 
I was buzzing. It all went back to like shit. Like, you know, I was back to being another out of work actor. I was, you know, I, that's it. I had nothing. I had nothing. I was in a movie. It's not I am in a movie. I, you know, <laughs> saying I was in that picture is not like saying I am in that picture. Right. So, so, you know, the, the present verb tense is what, where, where you get caught up in, in, in the thing. So, um, I don't know. Time went by. I did some gigs. I did, I, I did worked on my stand up act. I did a couple of commercials and, um, I worked, I did some commercials and a lot of auditions for a guy named N. Lee Lacey. Now to put who Lee is in context, back in those days, he was probably one of the most well-known commercial directors in the world. He's the guy who directed the, that uh, Mean Joe Green Coca-Cola commercial, that very famous. Whoa. Yeah, he's yeah. the guy who directed that. So he and I became friends, you know, he, for some reason, he just liked me, you know, like I was crazy and I was, you know, kind of fearless and I didn't get every commercial that I auditioned for, for him, but I got a couple, you know, and we had a nice relationship. So, um, uh, I survived and I, you know, I was able to, to kick back, but I, I kept searching for another thing. You know, I wasn't getting any more parts. I tried, I was going out, you know, it's hard to get, I lucked into last house and, and, um, you know, I was getting enough to get by, but I wasn't really doing anything. So, and I, the women's scene was like fucking, you know, I, I was like a sponge trying to get water on a desert. You just wasn't going to fucking happen. Yeah, you weren't getting the easy pussy. No, I wasn't. I, wasn't. I was having to really work for it and, and work for, you know, average, not the, not the fucking <laughs> creme de creme that I was used to, right? For three weeks, I got used to it. For three weeks. So for three weeks, <laughs> I got used to it, right? So this is a good three weeks, queen. though. Whole three the weeks, though. Queen. It's like a whole three weeks. weeks but it was and a I good three sleep. weeks I, it was a solid three much. weeks and and i didn't sleep much so it was like six weeks okay um <laughs> taking advantage of it yeah of course so <laughs> anyway one night i'm at a party in new york and i see a guy who you know doesn't look much better than i do just kind of average and he's in a corner of a room talking to a woman that is a fucking 10 plus just gorgeous like real new york model type you know just absolutely fucking gorgeous and and she i can tell she's mesmerized by this guy so i know you know moseyed on over there and and i had to hear what he was saying and what i heard was well yeah i'm i'm struggling a little bit with my second act i got the first act uh, uh perfect and uh um you know and i gotta get it done my agent in los angeles really needs it you know it's he's he, there's a guy at a studio he wants so i'm just you know, I know how it ends. I know what the, what the, you know, climate and she's just fucking wrapped up in this. And I thought to myself, Hey, I could do that. So he I, was playing I, the brooding writer. I could tell Sorry. girls I'm a writer. Right. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I go out and I buy a bunch of books on writing, on playwriting, screenwriting, and TV writing. I wanted to like be a, you know, versatile writer. So uh, uh, I bought little primers on all of those books. And I started this little rap, right? I started this thing and it got better and better and better and better and better and was working and working and working and working. So I was a, like a writer at parties. I'd meet girls and, you know, you didn't really have to do anything. I just like in my apartment, I just, you know, I throw some notebooks around and have a typewriter, you know, just nonsense. You could dress the set like in a second. It just, 
you know. So you, so you weren't actually a writer professionally yeah. at the time. You were no. just playing a writer. Playing so you were acting at parties to get laid. Let's you be put ink on your fingers. Like, okay, oh, yeah. that's how. But along the way, I was acquiring all this nomenclature, right? All these words. So one day, I find myself in Lee's office um, in his reception area. Uh, I was there for an audition, and uh, I talking to a girl and I'm doing my thing and it's fucking working. And she's just about to give me her phone number when I get a tap on my shoulder and I turn around, it's Lee, the director. And he said, Hey, let me talk to you for a second. And I said, what? He said, didn't mean to intrude, but I kind of heard what you were saying. I'd love to read that when you're finished. And I was like, you know, panicked. I took him aside. Right. And I said, Lee, look, man, I'm not writing anything. I'm, I'm, th this is all scam. You're a guy. I'm telling you, we're friends. No bullshit. He said, I said, I'm just doing it to get laid. And he said to me, is it working? I said, oh, yeah, all the time. And he said, then you're like a fucking idiot. And I said, why? He said, dude, if you can get women to take their pants off for, for, for things you're pretending to write, imagine how your life would improve if you actually sat down and wrote something. <laughs> I want to interrupt for just a second. And I looked second. at him and, you know, 21, 22 years old, I said, huh, I never really thought about it like that. <laughs> so I ended up writing it and it took me like, I don't know, year and a half to finish it. And I gave it to what, him. What was it specifically that you oh, it was it? It was a, it was a, a movie called uh, movie Snakes from, uh, uh, that's all I called it. it was about the story was a, a bunch of poisonous snakes get loose in New York City in Central Park on a hot summer afternoon. You know, okay. somebody was smuggling snakes. They had a, car, a van accident, rolled, went down into a gully. Snakes got loose, and now there are all these events in the park. So you know, it's just a scary thing, right? So what did women do when they found out that you actually weren't a writer, or they did you? It was out. just usually a one night thing, and then you never saw never, them again. No, I'm not. Stupid. How would they find out? So you loved them, and you left them. I love them and I blame the work. I, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say though, Lee, I think is very smart because if you have the narrative skills to, you know, scam women into bed with this fake thing, you could probably write. Yes. Yeah, because so, writers are liars. Well, wait, so, lie for, so now when I said to you, it gets better, right? This is what yeah. I mean by this. I send it to Lee and like, I don't know, a month, six weeks later, he calls me up and he says, uh, how'd you like to move to Los Angeles? I said, why? He said, because we sold your script to NBC. I said, what? The script said, you yeah, hadn't written agent, yet? My agent at William Morris uh, sold your script. He gave, I gave it to my agent, Stan Kamen in the motion picture department. He gave it to Arthur Axelrod and, and uh, Jerry Katzman, the head of the TV department. They took it over to NBC and they sold it. I, and I went, hop, 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 hop. I became like Jackie Gleason, man. Hop, 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 what? This you was know? the snake script. Yeah, the snake script, right? Oh. So, so he said, yeah. He said, uh, you come to LA. Uh, we'll make the, you know, make sure the deal is made. Uh, I have a car here for you. We'll get you an apartment. And uh, of course, you can have an office in my complex. He owned the building on Melrose Place at 8446 Melrose Place. It was this, this one-story sprawling mexican like hacienda office area and hmm. he shared he he rented the other he had half and then he rented the other half to neil diamond okay okay so 
that's where Neil's office is. There's got to be some stories there. Anyway, um, <laughs> did you get his runoff? I will tell you this. Did he say hello more than once when you saw Neil him, Diamond? Yes, I, I okay. saw it, said hello to Neil more than one time. Um, so, <laughs> so he said hello so, again. So um, when I said to you, it gets better. When you see you, you made some reference, not you, the uh, your, your partner, the made, other you, uh, a, a reference of, uh, you know, I came to before family. To, no, I landed in LA to move, move uh, here. When I, the day I landed, I had a car, an apartment, money in the bank, uh, uh, an office, and William Morris as my agent. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and it's a spec script, basically. And, well, it was a spec script. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you nice. see with the most uh, per capita, most beautiful women in the world, probably. <laughs> Listen, I, you know something? I don't. I love fucking Los Angeles, man. It has been, I, it has been so good to me. Uh, I, I, I never do any Los Angeles jokes, because I mean, you know, it was William Morris that set me up at the comedy store, and and that's what caused me to become a, a, a you know, like a member of the class of 77 with Robin Williams and David Letterman and Jay Leno and all those guys are now my friends. They're my, you know, my peers. And, and it, it, this LA has been just amazing to me. Uh, um, you know, I met my second wife here and how, how close were you to, uh, to Letterman and, uh, Leno and those guys, uh, back in the day when we were all, you know, kids, we were with each other at least five days a week, uh, well, both from from eight o'clock at night to one or two in the morning. We which were, one of them was the most annoying? Neither one of them. They're both great guys. Back, that's what I remember. Well, I mean, I, just I, those two. I mean, like of all of the comics that you're hanging out with. Oh, who? I, I don't. I don't talk trash about people. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's not my question. Is that man. well? There had you to know, be somebody. I, no, I can appreciate you know, like it. Was yeah, Bobcat Goldthwait or somebody. You know. So no, you know something. Uh, um, I, I don't do that. And not because I, I have no fear of anyone. Right. It's not that I don't do. I just, it's just not me. It's a, right? it's a hallmark of good character. Mark is yeah, what we're dealing with here. So, so, he will scam I, women out of their pants, but he won't talk bad about his friends. So that's a good day. thing. That's actually, a, that's an honest day's work. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, speaking of one of, of, of somebody, um, one of the things I realized about being on stage at the comedy store back then, and I imagine it's still the same, but for us, it was, you know, it was our uh, new experience. And, and I'm an original paid regular that my name's been on the wall for like over 40 years, right? So I'm, I'm part of that original crew. But I realized uh, uh, that very shortly on, that as long as I stayed with this microphone in my hand on the stage of the comedy store, I was never, ever, ever going to have to go to a singles bar the rest of my life. Okay? <laughs> now, I'd never spend a nickel buying a drink looking for So pudding. comedians have It's never going to happen. Comedians yeah. have clothes. So what comedians would do, and myself included, was, you know how singers, if they see a girl in the audience and, you know, she attracts, she, he, they, that, he finds her attractive, some romantic guy singer, he'll like croon to her. Yeah. yeah. So the comedian version of that is to be on stage and do your setup of your joke to the entire audience and then do the punchline right to the girl. 
That's the comedian mm. version of that. Mm. And it works the same. It has what was your favorite joke for that purpose? Ooh, I don't know, man. I, I can't, I, I really, you know, can't remember my act in that specificity from back oh, then. Sorry. And the jokes I would do now, I'm not allowed to even have that intent because I'm happy to <laughs> So we, we don't even get involved in that right now. Right. So, I understand that. I'm on wife number two as well. Yeah. So just, I don't mess with this because my, my wife is just too terrific to me. So, um, but so one night I'm on the stage and uh, I see a table of girls and there's this one skinny brunette, kind of cute, you know, who's looking at me. And what I would do is if I thought somebody was interested, I would test it, right? I could take your temperature by the way I moved. Like if, if I, if every time I moved left, I saw her eyes go, or their eyes, they, I could, you could tell, right. You know how, if they're really watching you or they're just watching you as a comedian, There's these a- are life lessons, Greg, pay close attention, take notes. Yeah. No, I'm asexual now. I don't, I don't... So, so <laughs> you're asexual. Yeah, there's so. no future in that. Um, <laughs> so, so I see this girl and sure enough, I finish my set. I, I walk in the back of the comedy store and she runs right back. And she, Oh, I loved your set. I loved your set. Where are you from? And you know, so she's like, hitting on me with a fucking sledgehammer she's giving you a green light basically yeah of course i know that so uh i I had my house the place i lived i had a house in laurel canyon about six minutes from the comedy store i just right down to sunset make a right half a mile i'm at the store and the same going back so within seconds we're we're back in my apartment in my house and um uh having fun so you know clothes come off you know it was the time clothes come off real fast we do it have fun do it again have more fun take a break so now we're sitting up and she said to me listen um i need to tell you something i said look as long as there's nothing microbial in that <laughs> i don't need to hear anything yeah, microbial is not what you want to hear. <laughs> I don't want to hear any microbial stuff. Is this a microbial thing? And she said, no, but I'm I'm seeing another comedian. And I said, look, I don't know if you noticed, but we met like 40 minutes ago. So it's not like a thing. Like, it's not like, you know, I'm not even, I'm not even at the end of this evening yet, let alone anything else from this. Like, let so, me wash first. Yeah. And we'll talk. So she said, well, do you want to know who it is? I said, no, not particularly. I don't care again, unless it's a microbial thing. Uh, you know, and I hang out with those guys. I haven't seen anyone scratching. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> it was Paula Poundstone. So, so she says, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. It's David Letterman. Oh. And I don't say anything. And she said to me, uh, that's it. I tell you who it is. <laughs> and you don't have anything to say? I said, oh yeah, I have something to say. And she said, what? I said, I admire your range. <laughs> now, so at the I time had, Letterman was still just doing stand-up though, he wasn't. Yeah, he was, this yeah, was totally. pre-everything. Yeah. This is the this, 70s this, we're talking about, right? Yeah, he 70s. was still driving his fucking pickup truck from Indiana. Yeah. So, so um, now to David's defense, okay, I have no proof that this girl was telling me the truth. Like I didn't, 
to Letterman and say, hey, Dave, are you fucking this girl named Nancy, right? Can you call him now and see if he would... Uh, right now, if I ran, the podcast. If I ran into... <laughs> I've run into him every now and then through the years, and I believe it right now, if I, if I ran into him, I would tell him that story. Now, if it was Gilbert Gottfried, would it have been different? Would you have said if, something? If it would have been Gilbert Gottfried, I, I you know... Uh, uh, Gilbert, I, I didn't know Gilbert really well. I met him a few times and I wouldn't at all say that we, we knew each other other than to say hello to and, you know, we knew each other's names. I, no, I wouldn't. Again, uh, nobody knows why anybody does anything or anyone. So, uh, yeah, and Godfrey wasn't really that big of a name back then, Greg. He didn't really no. get famous until like late 80s uh, after like the no, last He was movie. doing comedy in like the. I think late seventies, early eighties. When he was, like he was, but then he went on Saturday Night Live and he became better yeah. known. But he oh, hadn't, yeah. he hadn't really perfected his persona by then either. So, you know, he didn't really come into that until much later. But that's neither here nor there. We're talking about Mark. So, Mark, you were so you did. Did you kind of move away from TV writing when you went into stand-up comedy, or um, well, were you no, doing it at the same was, time? It was simultaneous. What, ha what happened was, I know it was actually the opposite. Oh. Um, right after see it was William Morris set me up at the comedy store so they were already looking for work for me as a writer mm -hmm. uh, because it it was pilot season had not yet started it was uh 70 1976 so the pilot season which would start you know around uh writing season would start like April-ish May-ish uh, and nobody uh I didn't know what it was going to happen but they were sending me around to a lot of meetings and they set me up at the store. But then I got a lot of work as a writer. I started to work all the time. And I was able to do stand-up for, I think, five years or something, six years. And then the writing just got to be too intense. And then I got married and had kids. So I stopped doing stand-up and concentrated on television. So in, in the early 90s, I, I did some stuff. And then I just had a break. You know, I, got, I aged out of a bunch of shit. Uh, I got a few jobs because I still had friends who were presidents of studios, but, right. but, you know, uh, then in the 2000, I did some stuff. Uh, I went to Cuba in 2010 and became the only person to ever, uh, executive produce a situation comedy, uh, for Cuban television. Was Castro oh. the main actor in that? No, he was not, but he was, okay. he, you know, uh, that would have made it a lot of fun. It would have, you know. Uh, well, it's interesting because you worked on Charles in Charge. I did. We talked to a guy who worked on Charles in Charge who also went to Russia. Who's well, that? A communist country. Who? John Vorhaus. Oh, John I know. I knew John. He did the Married with Children. Yeah, in yeah, Russia. yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew. I knew John. Yeah, yeah. He, so we, in Cuba, was it called Carlos in Charge? Uh, no, no. Oh. The show that I did in Cuba was called Utelon, which means "Oh, the curtain." And Greg is part Cuban. Pardon me. I'm half. Greg, Greg, our uh, our co-host here is part oh. Cuban. Habla español? Um, un no. poco. poco. Yeah, I always go un poquito. <laughs> yeah, my un wife poquito. is uh, my wife is Colombian. And, oh, okay. And we live uh, in Colombia around three to four months a year. So, you know. So you're fluent. You know, I'm not I, I, I'm not fluent, but 
I, I go everywhere I want to go by myself and I, I, I know how to speak, say what I want. And I kind of yeah. always understand what's going on. So what was the show, the shtick of this Cuban show? Oh, this, okay. The, it was called Utelon, which means, oh, the curtain. And the premise was, it's about a young girl who uh, runs off of, uh, who bolts her wedding in a small town in Cuba and, and runs off to Havana and joins a down and out theater troupe. And yeah, I mean, it was, a, I wanted a premise that was like kind of universal, you know, and, and uh, I had to work with writers with, you know, these Cuban writers and they submitted a bunch of stuff to me that I won't even, that I wasn't even able to judge on the merit because it was just impossible to do. You know, it was just physically impossible to do. And then I just sent them out with one afternoon with uh, an assignment. And I said, when you come back here, I want to know the person, want, I, want, I want you to come back with two people and present two people to me. The person you loved in your life or love in your life the most and the person you have despised or despise in your life the most. And I want everybody to tell me who those two people are in their lives and why. And from those people, I drew, I, I, I gave them the guidance to, to, um, to draw characters. Is that Fidel Castro? <laughs> he's, um, he's calling him from the grave. I don't even know who that was. So um, I got them to approach the, the show from a, a character point of view, rather than, you know, coming in with some kind of premise that was going to be you know, you couldn't make, you couldn't do. It was just too big for the budget. It was just too big for a bunch of other. Well, that's uh, the basis of all good sitcoms. That's brilliant. Like, yeah, yeah. We're gonna so, have the asshole guy that everyone knows that, that guy. So, yeah. Is it the so basis that, of all good sitcoms, Greg, or all sitcoms? I think even a shitty sitcom, you gotta have like the guy who's a jerk that everyone can identify. All oh, that guy, I, I knew that guy. Yeah, that and and guy. so so they came back and they all had these two people. And I said, okay, now we have, you know, and I, I said, let's take this from this person and that from that. And, you know, and I said, now, where are we going to put them? And then they all threw out and somebody said theater. And I said, okay, how about a down and out theater company in Havana? And they went great. And then they went and I said, I gave them structure. I said, think of a family. You need a mother and a father, crazy aunt, crazy uncle and some kids that's not them bl by blood but think of that in foundation when you and they to their credit all of them they worked together and came back with what we had and i i thought they did an amazing you know in the time frame and the for the money i think they did an amazing job how did the show do it did very well that they, they we, i made two episodes and then uh, they were going to do more, but then budget cuts and, you know, nonsense. But they showed them on Cuban TV. They were very successful. They, they, they probably still show them. Now, is it normal in the TV industry for writers to generally only work a couple of episodes of a show? Because I noticed that when we talked to you and with John Vorhouse and, I mean, at least some other uh, TV writer we've had on. Well, they've only done like a couple of episodes of a show. Is it like you guys flit around a lot? I was on staff at Charles in Charge. Oh, you were? Okay. I did. Ten, I, I ended up, you know, was there for about six months. I did like 10 episodes. Got so, it. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't give you that much credit on IMDb. So I. 
Uh, well, you, I think you, there's a link you can get to all the episodes I wrote. Now, how did you get uh, the show in Cuba? Was that through William Morris? <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, no, no. I have a, a, a writing partner, sometimes friend, who's an internationally recognized screenwriting. Some, sometimes, sometimes friend. Sometimes. I like that. Yeah, That's sometimes. Mad, mad. No, always. All the time, all, I did that as a joke. Always, all the time, friends. Sometimes uh, I, I have a friend who's my sometimes partner, writing partner. Yeah. So um, he went to Cuba to a place called uh, EIC TV, which is uh, Escuela Internacional de uh, uh, Televisión and Film. And it was founded by uh, Castro, Fernando Bira, and uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, uh, whoa. Yeah, I know, blew my mind too, right? He's not even from Cuba. No, he's, no, he's from Colombia, right? Yeah. So, so um, Paul, my friend Paul Chitlick went there and uh, uh, they asked him to do the sitcom thing. And he passed and he said, I'm not right for this. I'd love to do it, but I'm just not funny enough. Um, I know somebody who is. And the next thing I knew, my wife and I were on a plane, uh, you know, out of Mexico City headed to Havana. Now, how long have you been married to your Colombian wife? Let me see. I think uh, 17 years. Okay. We're together 20 years. Yeah. So that's about right. Together 20 years, married 17. And all right. So all in the 2000s. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And, so you, uh, you never made it to Colombia while Escobar was uh, doing his things. No, but I actually knew people, I believe, who, who purported to me that they did business with him. I'm so. sure half of Colombia probably did at some point. Yeah, they had to. <laughs> no, not, not from down there, from L.A. Oh, in L.A. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. Well, that would also be half of L.A. Also makes sense, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Because that's where probably most of the sales were, were in uh, L.A. It was, let me tell you something. It was so wild back then. I mean, it, it was an absurd. I mean, you see people sticking their heads out of cars trying to snort the lines off the Santa Monica freeway. I mean, it was. Where's that rim shot when you need one? I know, right? <laughs> hey, I'm a comedian. Fundamentally, I am just a fucking comedian. You know, I, I stop it. I, I maybe should have researched more, but did you always have an affinity for comedy? Were you the class cut up as a kid? I'll tell you a story. Um, I was raised by a single father who was. Um, an extremely out-of-the-box aluminum siding salesman, like custom-made sharkskin suits and mohair suits and big Cadillacs and big diamond pinky rings and exactly what you would expect, you know. Uh, and um, so you were related to that guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I've seen so, that guy. So <laughs> my parents were divorced. I ended up living with my dad. My mother had moved out of state and. I was nine turning 10. And my father said to me, hey man, listen, uh, you're gonna be 10, it's a big, big birthday, uh, new decade, most important of your life right now because you start here a boy and in 10 years, you'll be a young man. And uh, I wanna get you something really special for your birthday. Uh, I like where this is going. And, and uh, <laughs> he said, his own pinky ring. No, no. So he said, so just ask me, just what do you want? And I said, uh, okay, I want the three stooges. 
And my father, being who he was, instead of saying, oh, no, that's impossible. I can't hear you. You know, so, you know, any kind of peas and carrots of how that ain't going to happen, said to me, OK, let me look into it. Cool. So, so he called a friend of his uh, who was the talent booker at a nightclub around Pittsburgh called the Holiday House, where the Stooges had appeared and found out that they were going to be there in January of 1959, three months after my birthday. So my dad came back to me. And oh, and, and he got their uh, agent's phone number, called the agent and made a deal for them to perform in a, on a Saturday afternoon while they were there at a private birthday party that my dad would throw at the Holiday House at the nightclub. Right now, were they still was Curly still around then or was, no, this it was the, uh, Mo Larry, Mo Howard, uh, Curly Fine and, and I mean, and uh, uh, Curly Joe Dorita. Curly Joe, got it. Yeah, we, we had actually I, the real Curly's grandson on our show uh, about a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah, that was kind of a fun interview. But you anyway, I'm sorry, interrupted. Mark, you might find this interesting. You know, my little aside: this kid would just grow up like you, loving the three studios, and then like in his teens, his mom was like, "Yeah, you know, I never told you your father was, <laughs> and your grandfather's Curly." <laughs> like, so he was like instantly had this like status with all of his teenage friends. Who was like, "Fuck." So, so what happened was my dad came to me and he told me, he said, look, I can get him for you, but it's going to be um, not until January. So you tell me what you want to do. So I said, yeah, book it, go. So um, about 60, 65 people show up to the Holiday House, big nightclub. They start doing the show. And in the middle of the show, Mo stops the show and he says, folks, we're here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Where's Mark? So I look at my dad and my dad is like, raise your hand, you know? So I raise my hand and uh, he said, why don't you stand up? So I stood up to so give around Mark a round of applause, his 10th birthday. I said, well, actually it was three months ago. And Mo said, we don't care. Today we're celebrating. <laughs> so Don't get picky. He said, I was afraid he would have done this to your eyes. Like, come on, come there. No, wait, 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 wait. So, so, um, Mo says, uh, your dad tells me that you are Pittsburgh's number one Three Stooges fan. And I said, yeah, I am. Mo, I got a little bold, right? I said, Mo, I called him Mo. <laughs> My balls tickled. I remember that. I said, Mo. And, uh, ball tickling moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, and I know all, and I know all your bits. So Mo says, "Well, why don't you come up here on stage and show us?" And I looked at my father. I fucking froze. I said, "What do I do?" My father said, "No time to explain now. Just get your ass up on that stage." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "You'll thank me. Get up there." So how did it go? He's going to tell us, Greg. Let him tell the story. No, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm so excited. No, it's okay. It's <laughs> this is a great story. So I go up on stage, and we start. Mo does something like that to me, and I go like this to him, and <laughs> then he does something to me, and I yell, "Mo, Larry the cheese! Mo, Larry the cheese! Mo, Larry the cheese! Mo, Larry the cheese!" And I, you know, and they, Niagara Falls, and I start backstepping and shit. And <laughs> he fucking falls out. It was in Niagara Falls. 
Niagara Falls. Slowly I turned, and step by step, inch by inch, I walked up to him and I smashed him. I hit him. I knocked him. I knocked him. I and I knocked him down. And he stops the show again, and he puts his hand on my forehead and my head here, and he said, Mark, I dub you the fourth stooge. <laughs> Everybody went fucking nuts. Like 60 people became 6,000 in about an instant. And they just couldn't bang in the tables and shit. And I remember being up on that stage and just getting this warm feeling. It was like somebody had just thrown a, a, a heated down quilt at me and it was hugging me and making me feel the best I had ever felt in my entire life. So I'm writing a book now, uh, a, a fictional version of my, of my life called uh, Dumb Fucking Luck, Dumb Effing Luck. And uh, uh, that's the day that I remember uh, deciding that, you know, I want more of this. Right. And that's and a great then, story. From that on, I was, I became like an incessant television watcher. I watched every comedian on television. I, I got to understand what stand up was. And then my dad said to me, I don't know, maybe a year later, my dad said to me, uh, Hey, listen, I have a friend from Hollywood in town. He's a comedian. And he tells me his name and I hear Big Ship. I know some guy named Mr. Big Ship, right? And he's, he wants to have lunch with us. And my dad used to manage a nightclub after World War II. So he knows a lot of, he knew a lot of people. So we go down to the William Penn Hotel and Mr. Big Ship turned, it out, to be, turned out to be comedian Joey Bishop. Oh, who, okay, cool. A friend of my dad's. Yeah. Right? So Joey Bishop uh, was a friend of your dad's. Yeah, Joey Bishop. Nice. Okay. So was, so was actually Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, okay. So so um you know, I I was just then I saw watching Joey Bishop on TV and you know and just got into it and that was it, you know. So when you say was I the class clown, I was thrown out of public school uh for being too funny. Ah. Was that that was the thing that was written down on paper? He's too funny. He must go. They told my father. No, they they told my father that uh, they. What happened was, uh, I was in a, a an algebra class. They didn't like me to begin with because I was always smart mouthing, right? But right. I I had this thing where if the if any class if a teacher would ask a question, kids would put their hands up, right? If anyone saw me my, put my hand up, they put their hands down. And then that was because they, they you know, they did, they knew something was coming, right? So, so um, the teacher writes an equation on the board, you know, like x plus t minus q times f with some squiggly thing to the third equals something. And he turns to the class and says, something's wrong with this equation. If you can tell me what's wrong with this equation, I will give you 25 extra credit points towards your final grade. And a bunch of kids put their hands up. And then I thought of something and put my hand up and everybody's hands went down. So the teacher knew, right, that I was, you know, I had no answer, but he's, Mr. Scheffler, you know the answer to this. And I said, yes. 
And he said, okay, Mr. Scheffler, what is wrong with this, this equation? I said, no vowels. Class cracks up. <laughs> he doesn't even skip a beat. He says, go to Frizzle's the office. office. Right. It's enough. It's enough. Go. Just get out of here and don't ever come back. Okay. On that note, this is a perfect time for us to go into the cooking segment, which we should have done like 15 minutes ago. Um, and Greg has gone to the bathroom, I'm sure. So since he's not That's participating. Not to the cooking segment, is it? It might be. Minutes. That's usually what he waits for. He waits for the cooking segment and to I go did. use the bathroom. And I didn't uh, do it soon enough, apparently. So I just need to get it uh, get it started so Greg can finish with, uh, with whatever it is he's doing. Greg, we're, not, we're happy to have you back. Thank yeah. you. Sorry about is that. Is Greg back? Has he returned? Okay, Nate, good. Nature called, and I answered. At Safe Mart, it's a Safe Mart. Come to Safe Mart and be safe. Safe Mart is a proud sponsor of Food is for Eating with Waspy Soda Pop. Today's special, Kiviac, fermented seal stuffed with Ockbirds, only $532 a pound. Come get some at Safe Mart. Be safe. Food is for eating, food is for eating, food is for eating with Waspy Soda Pop. Hey there, everybody. You are in for a treat. This is Waspy Soda Pop and food is for eating. Today we got bagels and locks three ways. First are your ingredients. You want to get three medium bagels, split them, and toast them. Then six ounces of cream cheese, softened cream cheese. Six bunches of hair. It can be blonde, brunette, or red as needed to taste. Three tablespoons of capers, drained and divided. That is optional, of course. Not everybody likes capers. They're kind of weird. Six ounces of thinly sliced smoked salmon. Three metal fasteners, not deadbolts. Remember that. One third of a cup of thinly sliced red onion. That also is optional. Again, not everybody likes onions. Red onions are also kind of weird. Freshly ground black pepper also to taste and lemon wedges to garnish. So simple, so simple. All right, here's how you make it. You spread the toasted bagel bottom halves with cream cheese. You sprinkle half the capers over the cream cheese if you desire them again. Capers are weird. Top off each bagel half with the sliced smoked salmon, one metal fastener, and one bunch of hair for each half. I prefer the red hair to match the salmon. You know, you want to have your color branding correct, your color grading. Garnish the bagel tops with the rest of the capers, the onion, and the black pepper, and then you garnish with fresh lemon wedges. Doesn't get any easier than that. That's locks three ways. You've got the smoked salmon, you've got the metal fasteners, and you got the bunches of hair. Those are all three different kinds of locks. If I gotta spell it out to you, it's time for you to buy the source. Anyway, this is Waspy Soda Pop. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, bagels and locks is a hard recipe for people to follow, so I guess it was necessary for that to be produced. Well, it is when you have to get locks of hair and <laughs> There's, it's <laughs> way master harder. locks. You gotta go to where, a hardware where, are guys, still, where are you guys still, located? We're up in Portland, up oh, in okay. Oregon. Yes. Portland, although, Oregon? yeah, although we're both East Coast transplants, so I moved here from the DC area, and Greg is from New York. I like I like Portland. I have, I have a couple of friends who live up there. It's I, I like this town too, even though it's on fire right now. There's smoke in the air. <laughs> there is. How is there? I didn't know there's smoke quality. in the air. Hey, yeah, what's not not in my neck of the woods, Greg. Every morning I check the weather and it says like it's worse than it was yesterday. That's what it tells me. Great. It's worse than it was yesterday. The air quality is worse. Any town <laughs> where you can you can get 900 different beers is a fucking 
Oh, yeah. I have a, I have you a can beer definitely nerd. get a lot of beer here. I have a beer nerd friend from Vancouver, Canada, who comes down here and he's just like in heaven. He's just like, we're going to this place. I read about it on the internet. There's crazy places here. Yeah. If you're a beer I've, guy. I've, I've almost been like stomped out for not drinking pissy beer in places. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a real snob. And I oh, this is a city for snobs. I got to tell you about beer. Oh, That's yeah. True. Yeah. I think you can't buy a house there unless you click that box off there you a snob yes i am okay you're welcome <laughs> i'm a snob in some way i don't know which way but i'll find the right niche I'm like, all right we'll got to move into the ask greg segment this is our legal segment so i'll okay. get this one going right now as well so he has an opinion may not always be right he's a real fake lawyer he's old and he's white ask him a question because he's a good egg for bogus advice ask greg Ask Greg. Ask Greg. Okay. This is our legal segment where we take questions from the audience. If there is ever an audience that has a question that they want to ask. But um, I do have a question from the audience, Greg, if you are ready for that. Well, does Mark have a question? No, so, I've, I defer to the audience. Okay. <laughs> He's giving it, giving it back to the audience. All right. So here's the question, Greg. For your legal expertise as a very fake lawyer, what are the difference between water rights and riparian rights? This is from Josie Eldorado in Queens, Florida. So, Matt, this is a humor segment, but you're just trying to like prove that I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> riparian. Well, no, rights? I, I, I really want to hear your response. I think you will have a very educated guess on the difference between water rights and riparian rights, Greg. So riparian. let's let's hear them. Yes. So, water that rapes. Fruit? I have no idea what riparian. It sounds Latin. Like, is this some? I just looked it up. <laughs> well, See, Greg is the fake was... lawyer. He's supposed to know this from the tip of no, his tongue. So I'm talking to my associate Mark right now. Mark, uh, <laughs> as my uh, legal aide. Um, the legal aide. Could you uh, tell me the definition of riparian rights? Well, it says here in uh, uh, in an excerpt from the University of the Internet. <laughs> a riparian right entitles the landowner to use a cor correlative share of water flowing past his or her property. Riparian rights do not require permits, licenses, or government approval, but they only apply to the water which would naturally flow in the stream. So what that means is if you have a stream flowing through your property that flows there naturally, it is your riparian right to access that stream as it appears on your property. Do yes. you concur? Do you concur with that, Greg? Is that accurate? Um, I'm going to say yeah. It sounds good. Uh, <laughs> you can swim in it. You could uh, drink from yeah. it. But yeah, you can't pee in it because your pee would go up or downstream. Yes. Well, I wouldn't do that anyway. And right. who would have the riparian rights to your pee, I'm, Greg? I'm not a fucking animal. I yeah, I would <laughs> never pee in a stream in my life. But I'm saying, like, usually the questions are kind of uh, ripe for comedy, riparian for comedy. And uh, was, alien, like, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. Doesn't that sound like an alien race? Ah, oh, the riparians are here. I was going to like they're part of the QAnon. <laughs> they, they know the Kardashians. Yeah, which I always thought was like a Star Trek thing until i found they were real i know connection sounds like a star trek thing yeah all right i got another question for you greg for this is yeah, from janine this is from janine box cutter from albuquerque utah 
And her question is... Is that a Russian name, box cutter? I'm not yes, it with- is. It says, my husband has moved out of the house. We're getting a divorce. I haven't worked in four years because he has an electrical company, and I didn't need to. I would like to know what my legal rights are from this point on. She has every volt he works with, she has half the rights to. Half of every volt. Yeah, he's an electrician. It's known as a demi-volt. But, <laughs> okay, but, dem- but what's on second? No, who's on second? What's on third? <laughs> that was that was cute. I gotta say. Thank you. But yeah, yeah, she's got the right to all of his half of his electricity, his voltage. Now, if the electricity was in a stream, would she have riparian rights for the electricity as well? You could only tap the electricity when it flowed past your house, <laughs> right? And if she peed stream, on the electrical though. stream, but that would be a very dangerous stream. It's like you couldn't even touch it. It was right, <laughs> had voltage in it. So, yeah, I think that she does have rights. Because, okay. you know, it's... Um, well, she wouldn't know what those rights are, though. Well, I'm saying, she, I don't know if there's a Latin term for it, like a legal term, but, you know, that's his business. So she has half... She has uh, She has sin humpus neighbor. <laughs> sin humpus neighbor? <laughs> yes, which means if her husband leaves, she can hump the neighbor and it's not a sin. It's habeas coitus, I believe that's what that's called. Habeas coitus, right. Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think we've got that on the on the nose there now. Okay. Well, all right, good. Well, we've got through our <laughs> through our legal segment. So let's time it's time to deal with our client with whatever time we choose to deal with, because uh, once again we've given our client short shrift. And our client, once again, is life is horror and you're horrible. So essentially what this means is, you know, going from we'll just take it back to the last house on the left. So Last house on the left, I don't think is that far off from probably some true circumstances that has happened to somebody in this country, given the nature of kidnappings and abuse and abductions. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much thing, so many things in life that are actually just horror. But what would you say, Greg, is something that you've experienced that you could say was legitimate horror? I never have. Other than your actual life itself. My life isn't that horrible. I mean, most some people would see it that way, but it's pretty pleasant. But I, I just want to say that, like, I don't know if, Mark, you have any guilt that Last House on the Left led to many horror movies that are just, like, almost horrible to watch. Where it's, like, so, it's not just, like, a fun horror movie. Oh, yeah, like, we, were, we were, we were. Like, Don't Look in the Basement or something like, like that. We, yeah, all those movies, Maniac, all the slasher movies, where it's just like this. Is any dark. movie that had the word house in it, copy. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, it, it. But we were the first, and we were the original. So yeah. I didn't give a shit. You know, it was. I've had a changing relationship with it anyway. So, you know, I, I mean, I was kind of asking that facetiously because I grew up watching. Did you say facetially? I think I did. Is is that a word? I did. I just made it. I just coined it. <laughs> but I, I do got to say, I grew up as a Fangoria reading kid mm-hmm. who loved every nasty slasher movie in the early 80s, you know, late 70s. So it's not like I'm really like judging it, but it is like Last House of Love was particularly sadistic. You know, it was like, oh my Lord, this is just like. Was I it more it sadistic than the Clockwork Orange? Different, different. Oh. Yeah, it's a different genre, kind of, but at right. the same time, Clockwork Orange, I mean, 
honestly, I've never seen Last House on the Left, but Clockwork Orange what? for me was like this viscerally violent. But they still had fundamentally movie. the same thing. They they yeah. were both they they were both movies about class warfare. Yeah. You know, oh, so Last House so, on the Left was a class warfare film. Yeah, I, I believe quick. you know something that is that I say that that is my that's where I've landed on what it's really about. Uh. Right? And I've gone through different phases uh, of what what's the essence of that movie. And then I was watching it, I don't know, four or five years ago. I, I had to go to a screening of it and I was watching it. And I started to pay particular attention to the dinner scene. And that's when I realized what the movie was about. Because that that now I looked at it with very clear eyes and I said, oh, this is class fucking warfare. That's this is a skirmish in class warfare. Wow. Similar to, you know, I, I guess, uh, like deliverance, I suppose, would be something yeah. like that as well. Yeah. 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 There, there were the, the scenes that led up to the dinner. I mean, to the dinner scene and and sh shortly afterwards showed me that. Yeah. OK, it, it's not about just the violence. It's not it's it's there's a reason for it and we've just gone far too deep for our for our viewers Mark, and have listeners you ever seen so. uh, the jordan peele movie get out yes i think i have i that i know another... it sounds weird but yeah yeah that was another horror movie that had just this deep social undercurrent to it. well it yeah like, of course it isn't just scary it's like no they're telling this shit but look but... you know you, you can you can say what you want about last house plus or minus but last August, at the end of August, Last House was one of six films on display and being screened at the Museum of Modern Art in uh, New York City yeah. uh, uh, as part of an exhibition on, on films that have a visceral effect on the human body. And I got to tell you, when I saw the flyer for that and, and I saw the company it was keeping, I had like a holy shit moment, you know. I had, yeah. I had like one of my Casablanca moments where he's like, of all the fucking horror films ever made all over the world, they picked that. And I went, wow. No, there was something about it, even as a you know teenager, I didn't get why it was so moving. But you know, I kind of want to rewatch it now with what you told me, where it's like there's something about that movie here's, that was different than all the other slasher stupid I've, horror movies. Even though I was a part of it, I've learned more about what it is from talking to fans. Yeah. Right? Because I, I subvert my own ego there and I say, oh, who gives a shit what I think? You know, it's what they think that really counts. And yeah. I got from them a variety of things, but it, what, what I learned was the beginnings of what came my, my analysis about the class warfare thing. But also, I couldn't, for, for years, I couldn't figure out why is it still around? Why, why, yeah. why? It should have been gone and just like some fucking video selection, you know, on uh, an obscure website. But no, it's very, very front and center every yeah. now and then it makes it, you know. And then I learned from fans kids and their parents would come to my table to, to get stuff and the kids would say my parents made me watch this 
my mom made me watch this. My dad made me watch it. Wow. So my I parents said, well, why? Didn't want to watch that. Because they wanted, yeah, because they wanted me to know what could happen to me if I made a wrong decision. Oh, like what's yeah. out in this world? What are yeah, like the people you need to be the whole, the whole right. cautionary tale thing? And I heard that quite a bit. You know, it, it was it, it was a recurring theme among among fans. And I've talked to untold thousands of fans over the years, right? Maybe it's up to a million by now. I don't know. But I've talked to a lot of people. And that's a that is a very recurring theme. I think you guys are in the in MoMA with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead. Those are the permanent collections. Like they're all movies that were just like they were not trying to create art. They were just no. trying to make money. But Spy they, Who Shagged they, Me was on that list too, right? What Spider Baby? Spy Who Shagged Me, Austin Powers. That's no, a, no. on that list. But Spider Baby is. Uh, spider, spider baby spider baby that great, oh it's amazing you gotta check it out six, is six, this six. the child of spider-man uh no but it's an amazing movie it's beyond horror it's beyond just like a schlocky horror movie like where it taps into some kind of universal vein of just like family and horror spider baby has the seductive innocence of lolita and the savage hunger of a black widow Spider Baby will give you nightmares forever. No man that loves her lives to love another. Her sweet kisses engulf you in a bloody web of horror. Spider Baby will thrill you, then kill you. Starring Spider Baby and Lon Chaney. I, I got to give you a little bit of credit this week, though, Greg. I have to say, you've done a very good job of not being anywhere near as drunk as you were last week on oh, the I'm show. I'm fucking wasted right now. <laughs> I know, but I'm saying, like last week, you were in rare form. Yeah, he was. Sorry. He was nearly accosting Jeremy Rain through the uh, the the video that we were having was I with really? with his with his <laughs> mad crush on her. So, oh, can I promo I something? Sure. Yeah, please. Actually, take this opportunity to talk yeah. about anything you got going on, any websites, all of that, everything. Okay. Your book that you've got coming up too. I'm I'm in process writing the book. It's called uh, uh, Dumb Effing Luck. And it, it is the story of me and my very successful, mediocre career. Um, and tonight I'm in LA uh, and not in my house in Indio, but I'm in my apartment in LA because I'm attending a screening. Nobody ever goes to screenings, that you attend screenings. And <laughs> I'm going to a screening tonight, uh, premiere actually, of a film called The Once and Future Smash that I have a little part in as myself. So, Once and Future Smash, what's that about? It's, it is to horror films and horror conventions what Spinal Tap was to rock and roll bands. The Once and Future Smash. Oh, okay. Ooh, I want to see that. It's gotten, when I tell you that it has gotten at least a dozen fucking amazing reviews. It premiered in August at uh, Fright Fest in London. And okay. It was talk of the festival, right? And and every review I've read of it has been terrific. So uh, when when they were making it, I knew one of the producers who had called and asked me if I would come in and participate in this mockumentary. And he gave me the setup, and I said, "Fuck yeah!" It just sounds. I want to be part of this. So tonight. Mark Oh, sorry. No, 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 please go ahead. 
No, 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 to you, but I'm going to interject at some point. Oh, please go ahead, interject away. I just wanted to say sorry to interject, even though you, I thought you were done. But I just want to say that <laughs> speaking of conventions, I was at the 1982 Fangoria convention in New York City. Okay. And Michael Berryman was there. I know Michael. And I got to, yeah, of course you do. And I got to hear Michael Berryman talk. He talked about how. Yeah, Matt, do you know who Michael Berryman is? The bald no. guy in that's house on the left? Very otherworldly. No, like I said, I haven't seen the movie, Greg. But he was on years, he was in Weird Science. Yeah, he's kind of otherworldly. He's kind of He's a that guy. He's a that guy. You know, you see it, you've seen him. He's a, he's a very weird looking guy. No offense. No, really, but a great guy. Just a terrific <laughs> guy. Who, who would yeah. you be offending there, Greg? Well, you know, I said he's a weird looking guy. He is a weird looking guy. That's why he got all these roles in our movies. But he. But part of his condition was he couldn't sweat. So they were out in this hot film set and last house on the last house on the left. No, and they would always have, have to stop. He'll have eyes, not not last house on the left. Oh, I'm sorry. Eyes. Oh, yeah. that guy. Okay, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Because oh, I was so like, sorry, I thought he was in last house on the left no, too. Wait, did eyes. you say you're that was Wes's you're... second? That was Wes's second film. Oh, okay, but he would have to um, actually they have to stop filming so he could just pant like a dog. Like he he couldn't sweat, so he would get overheated. So, Greg, what what's actually the point of this? Uh, because I thought that Michael Berryman was in Last House on the Left, <laughs> but Mark does know Michael Berryman, so it all worked out. He's a very. He's a but why would you bring up this guy having to pant like a dog, though? Because it's an interesting story. This guy, this condition where he couldn't sweat. Now, the next time I see him, I got to offer him a bowl of water. Because right. yes, you do pat him and on the head. Yeah. Give him a little snack, a <laughs> Thank you for that for that interesting interchange of pointlessness, Greg. So I, I was drunk. Hard to get that these days. <laughs> oh Sorry. no, it's on our podcast every okay. week. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Let's go back to you. Sorry. No, it's okay. Well, we were I'm, talking about horror and horrible things, but I think he's got more things to plug. So please, wait, Mark. But can I got... ask? Is this no, Greg? He's got training? more things to plug. No, no, I want to know about that movie. I want to see that. So, but I, we want to let him finish promoting his stuff, Greg, and then please, talk to him about it. But I need to know how to see this movie. <laughs> um, I don't know the answer to any of those questions. Uh, so let me, and I'm not. I'm not not commenting or denying. I just don't know. I'm, I'll probably find okay. out tonight. But uh, it's called the Once and Future Smash. Yeah. If, if okay. any of you guys are out of comp- it's on IMDb. You can see it on IMDb. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I actually have another YouTube channel, which is a, a sci-fi fantasy news channel. So if I can get a press release on that, I'll probably put something together and put. Well, it if you if one of you if you have a computer handy, you can just search right now the Once and Future Smash, and you'll see what it what it is. Uh, <clears throat> it's just. Fucking hysterical, just the way they did it. And and they're getting, and, and a lot of these reviewers are making the Spinal Tap comparison, which I think is just sensational because that's yeah. one of my favorite films of all time. Me too. That's an honor. Yeah. So so it is. And the, the, the two directors, they're a married couple, uh, Michael and Sophia, are just wonderful. They're just, you know, they just had this vision and they kept it through you know, through the COVID bullshit and they just kept at it and shot a little bit here, a little bit there. And oh, uh, Lloyd Kaufman's in it too, apparently. Yeah. Whoa. We have they to call your friend, of- Greg, who was with uh, Toxic yeah. Avenger back in the day. I-, I know Lloyd Kaufman. I met him. Th- this, is, this is the thing. I told my wife, I said, you know, 
somehow I've really had a, a career. And I, and I said, I know this because when somebody asks you to be in your movie and play yourself. Right. Yeah. That's because, you know, you represent something. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm 73. So, you know, I, I'm, ref, I'm in that reflective part of my life, right? Where of like, what did I do anything important type of thing? Like yeah, I what never what did have anything. I accomplished? I, I swallowed, I swallowed that one a long time ago. That, but, but I've done things that were funny, which has been my goal. Right. But technically, it, you did do something important, Mark. Yeah, I guess. You know, you, you, you played you played a you played a major role in a movie that is part of the uh, the MoMA display of the uh, movies that have created a visceral effect on people. That's pretty significant. But but then again, in the course of writing my book, I looked back on on certain parts of my life. And like I told you, when I left college, you know, uh, three goals, smoke as much weed as I can, uh, sleep with as many different women as I can, make enough money to have the weed and the women. I look back and I realized one day that I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. Do you, you still smoke, smoke weed is the question. Much? Yeah. <laughs> it's legal now. You must have been think, so thrilled when you think this is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't it yes. looks like a lighter. No, watch this. The technology has changed from the days Mark, when I used to. I want to ask wait, you a wait. question, Mark. Mark, right. I don't even like pot. I never liked pot. It never did well with me. But Probably I was either. still into the politics of pot. Like as a teenager, I was like, why is this illegal? It's it's better than booze. Like, Guys, was, I am I am were you thrilled when they love were you amazed when they legalized it? Were you just like, I never he's thought- try, He's life. trying to answer you, Greg. You keep stopping I, him. No, I just wanted to ask you ask the question, Matt. Yeah, I'm saying I, I never thought it would happen in my lifetime. I thought it was science fiction. So, so as you know, California was very early on, right? Yeah, you're the first, yeah. I think. Yeah. So um, I became a, you know, I got a medical thing right away and I started, the, the thing, the thing is, I've, my body has grown up, but my, I'm still like 19, 20, 21 years old. I'm still kind of immature. And I, I'm not just saying it. It's like for real, you know, I, I've, I've been a zillion places in my life. I've seen a zillion things. I know a lot of people. I still think the coolest I've ever, thing I've ever seen is when I was, you know, 11 years old and I was at summer camp and saw a kid light a fart. That's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Blue and flame. I've seen a lot of <laughs> shit, right? So there's something I do when, about legal marijuana. If I go to a dispensary that's in a strip mall, and if there's a cop car there at another store, I will park as close to the cop car as I can, get out, and ask one of the cops, is there a place around here where I can buy some marijuana? <laughs> that's perfect i love it i do that almost every time and my wife sits in the car and goes you're gonna do this again you're gonna fucking do this again okay i said i said you know advice? how many times i ran from cops when i was like this yeah. is payback damn it you know <laughs> this is me this is me getting even with the man you know? Are some of the cops kind of cool? They're like, give you good. They're advice. all cool. They don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, dude, you got to try the purple. 
no, no, no. I never, I never, this place. no, no, no. I'll tell you, I would, and, and again, you know, this whole age thing, how it affects your life. I was coming back from Colombia. My wife and I were coming back from Colombia and uh, before COVID and that they would, you still had to go through customs with a person there, right? So I'm in line and, and there's nothing in my bags at all, you know, I think. And uh, this young customs officer said to me, uh, so where were you? I went, Columbia. He said, where? I went, Columbia, man. Yeah, but cocaine is illegal. So did they check your ass for a Wait, No, no, no. The guy looked at me, an old man. And I, and I knew it. he saw my beard was like out to here. He sees this old man with a beard, with a cane. Because I sometimes take a cane when I fly for, you know, for, for stability. So I don't get knocked over. And he just said to me, just go. <laughs> I'm go not going to go, you old back. hippie. Welcome back. He said, welcome back. There are people behind you. And <laughs> get out of my way. I got Jerry. pissed off. I said to my wife, did you see that? And she said, did I see what? I said, well, I faked like I was smoking a joint and then I snorted some air cocaine and he, he dismissed me. me. He just, he just fucking. <laughs> he didn't give me a rectal cavity search for he God's shit sake. me right out. That's <laughs> why Greg goes to fly is for one of those. Yeah. My, like my wife said to me, when we go home, take a good look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> Okay, a really if, good look. See if you can figure out why he did that. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mark, before you go, um, once again, is there a website uh, uh, where people can find all your stuff? I'm on okay. Facebook and Instagram, and uh, I, I'm working on my book. I'm going to the premiere of that movie tonight and enjoy myself, seeing myself on the screen and watching the work of these very talented, you're going to hear about these people. They're going to, you know, there's a, uh, these two are going to, they're going to make another movie real soon. Um, if nice. When your book comes out, feel free to reach back out to us. We'd love oh, to yeah. have you on again. Thank and you. we'll, we'll spend less time dealing with last house on the left. We'll just go right into the meat of the book. Whatever that happens to be. That's my thing. You're definitely entertaining. We, we right. totally appreciated having you on. Um, you also, by the way, me. everybody who comes on the show as a guest eventually will get an award from us. We have an award show every year, and uh, they're called the Quibblies. So expect that around June. We'll be reaching out and going, if you want to join us for our uh, our award show, which is all Zoom. It's all done on Zoom because we're very low budget. Come around, um, it would be an honor because I probably don't have anything else to do. Uh, that's right. You'll get your very, your very first award from us at the very least. All right. I don't know if you got them from anywhere else, but you got them from us. Thank you very much, Mark. Totally appreciate you. And uh, we'll see you another time. Bye-bye, Greg. That was a great episode, Mark. Sober up, Greg, is what he was trying to say. that could happen. (laughs) Hey, are you going to go to... Oh, I need to stop the live stream, don't I? We... uh, Yeah, well, you know what? We don't have any guests on next week, so we'll do it. We'll go a full... Fully into the client next week. (laughs) Since we barely even touched the surface of the client once oh, again, yeah, we did it so all. it'll be a redux ducks. Oh, really? We're gonna do horror again? 
we'll do it for a third time because <laughs> Brendan will be back and we can just be us talking about it. So yeah. that'll work out. So anyway, so this has been another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble Squad and Vicar. Our guest is Mark Scheffler. We have no guests in the foreseeable future, but uh, for now, that was that. Your consultation with the law offices of Quiddle, Squabble, and Picker has ended. You may pay your retainer at www.qsblaw.org. Please exit to the right of the water cooler and grab a candy from the front desk. We hope to see you again soon, but you need to leave now. I said leave. Why don't they ever listen? Get out. Get out.